welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we're starting a series today. Uh, Over the summer months, we'll be interviewing a number of high-growth potential companies across Atlantic Canada, and we're starting today with an interview that I did with David Shipley, the CEO of Beauceron Security, a very interesting cybersecurity startup in Fredericton. Yes, and uh, this is uh, one of the companies that uh, have ha- we have flagged from our conversations with the um, many accelerators and incubators across the region that we had the privilege of talking with in the past few months. Uh, there's a lot of companies uh, coming along that really nobody knows about. We want to highlight some of them, uh, and, and really the you'll, our listeners will see the list is really quite varied and, uh, and, and surprising. And, and to some extent, the uh, podcast that we did on the Spaceport uh, by Maritime Launch Series really fits this category as well, because it could be the it's, a, you know, it could be another significant uh, company. Absolutely. And Boceron is a textbook case of a startup that has done very, very well. They now have 47 staff. They started in Fredericton and started by attracting customers in the city. So the city of Fredericton was a customer. The government of New Brunswick was a customer. UNB was a customer. And after they got good at their product in New Brunswick, they took it nationally and then internationally. And they have plans to grow it to a $100 million business within a few years. So truly a, a good example of the many companies across our region that are growing. In fact, Don, I looked at the numbers because I was curious. I looked at the number of IT companies that had the increase in the number of IT companies with 50 employees or more between 2015 and 2022. And the growth rate in New Brunswick specifically, but across Atlantic Canada combined was higher than the national average. So in fact, we have more firms scaling here if you use 50 employees as a proxy than the rest of the country. So there's a lot of good news stories and you and I are gonna tell some of those stories over the next uh, few weeks and months. Uh, and this kind of supports the uh, the podcast that we did with Peter Moera of Entrevestor, uh, who's tracking 770 tech uh, startups across the region. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of activity. Uh, You and I both uh, are feeling increasingly confident that something real is happening in this region. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I've been talking about for some time is the underrepresentation of the private sector in our economy in Atlantic Canada. You know, we depend on more uh, more on uh, government uh, employment than private sector employment in this region. Um, you know, the stat that I always use is that in Atlantic Canada, one in four workers work for the public sector. And in Canada, that number is, uh, you know, one in five. Doesn't seem like a big difference, but it's like we're, we're playing a man short and trying to keep up with the economy in the rest of the country. So uh, the more startups we have, the more new companies that come along, the bigger the private sector becomes as a proportion of, of, the, of the economy. And I think that that's good for everybody. Nice, subtle reference to hockey there, uh, uh, Don. Very impressive. But I totally agree with that. I think I think government has stepped in to sort of help um, offset some of the weakness in the private economy over the past number of years. And so this is this is a good time to think about the private sector, particularly these local entrepreneurs and these tech firms and their growth potential across the region. And so we'll we'll uh, we'll tell those stories and we'll continue to uncover areas of opportunities and share it with our listeners. 
I just want to make one one point about the sector uh, that Bosteron is in. Uh, it, you know, in a previous podcast, we 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 talked a little bit about this cybersecurity, and uh, you know, the one comment that we got in the past is that it's not a vertical; it's a horizontal, and and by that I mean it impacts every organization in the public and private sector, even private individuals. You know, there's a great threat to uh, cybersecurity to everybody. It's just a fact of life. And, and if somebody builds a new mouse tra- trap in this area, you know, the, they've got the whole market to go after. It's a, it's a, big, it's a big market for, um, for Boceron. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was surprised last year when I saw that a hacker had taken out uh, an electricity utility in the United States. Russian mm-hmm. hackers, supposedly. So it's not just finance. It's not just, you know, the financial system. It's every industry. Uh, the a Newfoundland hospital uh, was taken hostage for ransom uh, for, for ransomware uh, a couple of years ago as well, David was saying in the interview. So, yeah, it's all sectors of the economy, private and public. Even, as you say, uh, individuals are, are um, will have their files sort of locked uh, you know, by a cyber threat and so on. So, yeah, so the sector itself has great potential globally. And the issue is how do we take advantage of that here? And I think David has a lot to say about that uh, in our interview. So without any further ado, here's my interview with David Shipley, CEO of Boceron Security. David, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Before we get into your company and what big problems you're trying to solve, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the road you took or the path you took to founding Boceron Security. So where were you born? Where did you grow up? Go to university, career path, and ultimately your decision to found uh, a cybersecurity startup. I'm personally interested to find out how you went from working in the military to a newspaper reporter to an IT department to founding one of New Brunswick's most promising startup companies. It's certainly a journey I could never have imagined 20 years ago. So when I was in high school in uh, in New Brunswick, the army recruiters came by and said, hey, do you want to drive armored vehicles and blow stuff up? And we're going to pay you way more than you could ever make at McDonald's. And I said, yes. And it was a tremendous experience. And then through that experience in 1999, I worked with the Coast of our refugees here in New Brunswick. And it left me with a lot of questions about the world we live in and why things are. And the army is good for a lot of things, but answering young soldiers' questions on why is not one of them. And so I went to university. And through that university experience, I got sort of reacquainted with my passion for journalism and my love for newspapers. And keep in mind, as a kid, I grew up idolizing the two most powerful superheroes in human history, Spider-Man, a photojournalist, and Clark Kent, a newspaper reporter. You know, we used to hold media reporters in such high regard that they were the only appropriate alter egos for our mightiest pantheon of heroes. So so journalism was in my blood. And in, in newsprint, you know, in ink, I, I just loved. And so I ran the student newspaper. Eventually was working for the Telegraph Journal uh, from 2004 to 2008, covered uh, crime, business and politics, you know, did the 2006 provincial election. And in 2008, the writing was on the wall for newspapers and my, and my time in the newspaper industry. Went to work for the University of New Brunswick in the phenomenal uh, digital marketing team. Uh, was given the task of reforming a 200,000-page ungainly uh, website into something that could deliver on the university's promise for, for helping young New Brunswickers and research and teaching, and I loved every moment of it. And on Mother's Day 2012, my life changed forever. 
That was a day a hacktivist group hacked the University of New Brunswick website and sent a nasty note to myself and about a half dozen others. And early that Sunday morning, I was out walking our Greyhound and I was, of course, checking my iPhone. I see this nasty note. I run back into the house. I check it out. It's legit. And I call my good friend, Sean, in the IT department and say, Sean, I think we've been hacked. And then I roll up my sleeves, I go into the, uh, the IT office, and I work with the team there and the CIO using my journalism background for crisis communications, my military background on incident response, and help contain and recover from the attack. And afterwards, the CIO asked me to build the cybersecurity defensive practice, not the academic side, the, the very much the, the pointy end of the IT side, how do we protect a 3,000-person university? And, you know, it's interesting, this, this breach that changed my life, the leader of the group that hacked us, the group was called Team Digital, was a U.S. Navy sailor hacking the University of New Brunswick and others, including the National Film Board of Canada. I mean, who has a problem with the NFB, but apparently. And uh, he was actually a systems administrator for a U.S. Navy nuclear aircraft carrier. And so he was caught by NCIS, which is the only time I've seen that outside of the really cool American TV show. And while I was at UNB and I started on the deep tech side of cyber, what I realized is after hundreds of different security incidents, it was always about people, process, and culture. And the more that I could educate and motivate people to care and know more about cybersecurity, the more I could turn them from the passive victims of cybercrime, the sheep as it were, into the active defenders or the sheepdogs. And that's where the idea for Boceron Security was born. And for those who don't know, a Boceron is a breed of, of sheepdog. We were, we were going to call it Sheepdog Security, but the name was taken. And saying I'm David Shipley from Sheepdog Security is really hard, despite how many times I practice it over and over again. Uh, and so the noble Boceron, for all of its breed characteristics, it was English and French New Brunswick. So maybe, you know, how do we incorporate some of our, our history and our pride in this province into the name? So we, we adopted the, the Boceron. Side note, I did not know Bostrom was also a nickname for a gentleman from the Bost region of Quebec. I guess that's just a side bonus. So uh, yeah, it's been fun. And in the United States, we're known as Beccaron because trying to pronounce Bostron has been uh, a little bit of a challenge, but but we're bringing a little bit of New Brunswick to uh, to the 50 states. Beccaron, that's an interesting American uh, interpretation of the name. Listen, um, before we talk a little bit more about Bostron security, can you, can you give our listeners a primer on cybersecurity? I mean, you're a cybersecurity security company in a cybersecurity cluster, I think it would be helpful to just give us a thumbnail sketch of what are we actually talking about when we say cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a now emerging national security threat to Canada. It is undermining uh, all organizations of all types' ability to deliver products and services to their stakeholders. And we've seen everything from the tragedy in Newfoundland with an entire provincial healthcare system held for ransom by international criminals, to mom and pop shops here in Fredericton, hardware stores that have been left down to pen and paper because of criminal actions to, to cripple them and everything in between. And when we think about cybersecurity, it has grown from 2015 from a roughly $75 billion a year global industry to more than $175 billion a year. And that sounds impressive until you find out how much damage criminals have been doing. In 2015, the damage was between $400 and $500 billion to the global economy in both direct and indirect costs. Today, depending on which estimation you use, it's somewhere between $2.1 trillion and $6 trillion. If it's $2.1 trillion, by the way, that's more, slightly more than all of Canada's GDP. That's the, that's the global economic tax of cybercrime. 
and it's having a massive impact. Traditionally, we've thought of cyber, and much to our mistake, as a tech problem. But as I noted earlier, it's about people, process, and culture. And we currently only spend about $1 out of every $100 on the human side. But the word cyber itself actually hints at where the problem actually is. And tech is only a third of that. So I guess what you're saying is no matter how strong my company's uh, system is, if I'm clicking on those phishing links, it's you know, that's a human issue, not a tech issue. Absolutely. 82%, according to the Verizon Data Breach uh, Report Incident for 2022, 82% of all malicious and non-malicious cybersecurity incidents start with people. And there are numerous studies that show this, whether it's aircraft safety or uh, other aspects, that the human element is important. And I alluded to this earlier, cyber. And cyber comes from the word kybernetes, which means the helmsman or the steersman on a ship in Greek. And it was chosen for the field of cybernetics to be the root word uh, deliberately and for a reason. Because when you picture an ancient Greek ship, you've got a human being at the back. That's the first element of cyber. Then you have technology, the oar, the rudder, the steering wheel that's in their hand. That's the second element. And the third is the one you can't see, which is control. Now at Boceron, our mission is put people in control of technology. Because the story of technology and control of humans is generally bad, whether it's the Terminator uh, and Skynet from that movie series or Boeing Max 8s. This is not a good story for us. And we want to make sure that when we're trying to use technology, which I believe can have a very positive role, it's essential for our ability to grow our economy, deal with the effects of climate change, and, and adapt to this world. But we cannot do it if we're not in control of it. So can you give us a specific example? So you you are, um, well, maybe the best thing would be for you just to, to sort of explain exactly what you what the what you do at Boceron Security. Is it a software? Is it a is it a set of tools? What what actually are you offering uh, clients? So, so Boceron is what's known in the industry as software as a service or SaaS. So we have built a cloud-based platform that helps individuals and organizations learn about cybersecurity. At the core of our technology and something that we pioneered is this concept of a personal cyber risk score that every single employee can see. When they do good things like answer our uh surveys and understand sort of how much they know and care about security, when they complete computer-based training, when they deal with the phishing simulations that we send. So we use the very same techniques as the criminals, but for good instead of evil. When they spot and report those, their score improves. If they make a mistake, their score takes a hit and they can learn from it. It's not catastrophic, but it gives them a barometer. And, and put simply, what we did for cybersecurity is take the exact same lessons learned from the Apple Watch or the Fitbit in exercise and applied it in our context. And it really gave people an easy to understand metric. How am I doing? And then we tapped into something powerful. And you've probably heard this before, this term gamification. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean playing video games and doing training because I can just hear small business owners and CEOs going, I'm not paying for people to play video games. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's this whole idea of the sense of accomplishment that can occur. And it, it can be as simple as getting an acknowledgement for reporting a fish and seeing your risk score improve. That psychologically has a massive impact on individuals. And then we've seen, we work with uh, regional telecommunications and national telecommunications company. And I remember this one regional telecommunications company, they had a very progressive CEO. 
And that CEO would actually review the Beauceron risk scores for each department and each executive alongside reports about vehicle safety and other things that, that were important as part of a total risk management uh, view and would hold executives and senior managers accountable for how their teams was doing. And so it, it moved cybersecurity from uh, a compliance-oriented check-the-box, did you give your people training about phishing? Check to an educational and motivational experience that has helped more than 600,000 people become a sheepdog online. Wow. So who are the clients? Are they mostly large multinational firms or do you have products targeting smaller businesses as well? So we have, uh, right as of today, 597 customers. I'm super excited. We're three away, three away from six, uh, 600. Um, by by headcount, most are small and mid-sized businesses. The vast majority, over half, would be under 100 employees. By revenue count, you know, it's probably about half is on that size, but about a third is very large enterprise. So our largest customer is about 100,000 employee, a global financial institution. And, uh, you know, they, they have a very distinct set of challenges are very regulated. So we help them meet the uh, increasing scrutiny of regulators in Canada and the United States and elsewhere. But we're also showing how we're driving reduced risk for the business. Do you have a mass mar market product yet? Oh, in terms of product market fit and growth and absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that the space that we're in, um, particularly the security awareness and trace security awareness and training space would be what I would call commodity space. And that's a good, a good and a bad thing. Um, it's good because it's a commodity every single business of all types, government, big, small, public, private sector needs to have. Huge opportunity. It's commodity that there's lots of people chasing after that opportunity and chasing after it from that compliance-oriented check-the-box, get it done. There are not many companies taking the deeper view that we have about the opportunity to transform cybersecurity by focusing on people and culture risk, uh, risk measurement and management versus trying to solve it with technological boxes. Think of it this way. Their most cybersecurity companies have been selling the cybersecurity version of the self-driving car with all of the flaws inherent of the current self-driving car and saying, you know, it's, it's almost that, that the line like, you know, vote for me and all your dreams will come true. It's a lot of cybersecurity tech has been sold saying it's a silver bullet. Mm. The reality of cyber is it's dirty, hard, long people, culture and education work. So who are your competitors? Are you are there any big sort of multinational players doing this or is it, or is it mostly smaller firms like who, who is actually competing in this space that you're in? So the, the Market Gorilla is a company out of Clearwater, Florida called Know Before, and uh, they're about 12 years old, and they've been phenomenally successful. They're now a publicly traded company. They're about, um, give or take, around $300 million in annual recurring revenue um, and about 1,100 employees. Uh, they weren't the first into the space, uh, but they certainly were the first to do this mass market into the space, and particularly their growth over the last couple of years helps when you get a $300 million Series C from KKR. You can really uh, throw the gas pedal down. Um, but we have competed effectively against them in all customer size classes. What, what's interesting from a competitive landscape standpoint is Boceron is now the last Canadian-controlled company specializing in this space. Uh, a previous company, which is actually one of the first companies out of Quebec that was in the space 20 years ago, just got bought out a couple of months ago by a U.S.-based uh, firm. And so we're the we're the last Canadian company standing in this space. 
Um, I want to come back to your growth potential in a minute, but I did want to ask you about how you got to where you are today. Um, we asked Jeff White to give us a, a couple of names of the his most exciting firms, and you were at the top of that list. So can you tell us a little bit about your growth path today, possibly revenue trajectory or funding rounds or, or, or where you are in terms of staffing? Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we were five customers in June, 2017, we had raised $500,000. We had five early adopter customers. We had myself was a, as the full-time employee, Catherine Cameron, uh, was, who was a, who was at the time a new grad from Mount Allison university, a venture for Canada fellow was about to be employee, full-time employee number two. She's now our chief operating officer. And I'll get back to, to Catherine's story in a moment. Uh, and then we had three part-timers. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're just shy of 600 customers as of uh, this recording. And, uh, you know, we uh, just crossed $3 million in annual recurring revenue. Um, and, and our growth trajectory, you know, we, we were, I remember, so excited. We did $100,000 in sales in 2017. And uh, last year, we crossed $2.7 million in sales. Um, so that's been the, the growth we we've raised cumulatively in two funding rounds, about, um, two funding rounds, plus some, um, what are known as simple agreements or future equity or safes about 2.13 million CAD, um, between 2017 and today. And we've been extremely capital efficient. Um, and we've also been extremely fortunate to have huge support from, uh, non-diluted funding sources, including, uh, the provincial government with, uh, helping us educate and train our own staff. Uh, NRC has been a huge part of our success, investing in our R&D and uh, the help over the pandemic. That was uh, that was some white knuckle driving uh, in 2020, uh, being the CEO of a startup. Um, and those programs paid off uh, big time. And we actually, we've nearly doubled our headcount. I mentioned earlier, we were five staff. We're, we're just about 47 uh, today. And, uh, you know, we've got big dreams. The... the the dream for me is to chase as close as I can the the Q1 Labs legend and to to try and follow that same Q1 Labs Radian 6 trajectory. How do we create hundreds of jobs in New Brunswick and then tie them to something even larger and create even more opportunities and fuel that 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 cluster, that expertise, that virtuous cycle that includes not just the, the good payday to your early investors and, and the people, the angels and others who believed you in you, but you're creating the next generation of entrepreneurs. And, and that's where I'm so excited about when you look at the, uh, the two most senior executives in my team, they're both phenomenal women. Um, Catherine Cameron, my COO, now manages two thirds of the company. And she um, she was the person that we sent to represent our company when Bosram was the first Canadian company ever selected to participate in Cyber London, the, uh, the cybersecurity accelerator in the UK. And, and she won the pitch competition at the end of that. And we got our first sale in the UK. And Catherine has grown phenomenally as a sales and marketing leader and helped build the processes. The, you know, it's not the sexy part of startups. It's not the tech. It's not the features. It's, mm -hmm. it's how do you get this thing to market? And uh, it's been a slog, absolutely. And, you know, I promised when I signed up to be the CEO, I was going to get us to $3 million in annual recurring revenue. That was my mountaintop. And, and trust me, I, I remember meeting with some of the great entrepreneurs here in New Brunswick. And one of them sat me down and said, one first million is going to be excruciating. And then it's going to get even harder. And they were 100% correct. But if you, if you love that challenge, 
if you want to go through the business equivalent of uh, marathon running, then this is the most filling and satisfying experience of your life. And it, and it has been for me. So where are your clients? Are they mostly in Canada, the U.S.? Where, where are they, where, is it generally speaking, in terms of where your clients are? About 95% of our, our clients are here in Canada. We have customers, um, particularly in the community banking sector in the United States. As we were a graduate from the Independent Community Banks of America, uh, their Think Tech Accelerator program in 2021, we now have 15 uh, banks in the United States. And banking in the U.S. is totally different th than here, but it's it's really awesome. These community banks are typically tiny, less than 100 employees, maybe a few hundred million or a few billion in assets under management, but they're responsible for 70% of small business lending in the United States. They have a tremendous economic impact and they're very much aligned with, with our mission of making the world a safer and better place. So, so they've been phenomenal to work with and, uh, and we're really excited about the potential to work and build up our presence in the U.S. focusing in, the, in that community banking space and, of course, reaching small businesses alongside them. So, uh, we also so have customers in South Africa and Europe. Okay. I just want to ask you just on the vertical side, is, would you say financial services are your primary target? So the definitely financial services and telecommunications um, are definitely primary markets for us. And it's interesting is they both have a vested interest in cybersecurity of their customers. So um, it makes a lot of sense on a, on a number of fronts. And of course, they're highly regulated industries um, with the bar always increasing. I would suspect healthcare government, I, basically any industry could use that service though, right? Because of what we see, what we're seeing, as you said before, in Newfoundland. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're extremely fortunate. One of our early adopter, our earliest first five customers was the city of Fredericton. And it was the mayor at the time, Mike O'Brien. And we, we had a beta product at the time. And he's like, I'm going to introduce you to our CIO. He's a really smart, passionate guy. We're going to give you a shot. And so we landed the city of Fredericton. Once we were able to be successful with them, that gave us additional credibility. And we had some incredibly supportive environment in government in New Brunswick to bring our technology into the government. You know, we often have this label of government is slow and, and that, but on, on, on several fronts, including IT and uh, cybersecurity, New Brunswick continues to lead. And they have a small team, but they are doing some amazing things. So, so proud of that. And we've expanded to healthcare in New Brunswick. And helping protect healthcare from cybercriminals in a pandemic is probably the most emotionally satisfying part of this job. Uh, you, you jumped the gun on me a bit because I'm going to come back to that issue of your lead customers. But I did want to ask you if you have some sense of what your adjustable market is. So what, within the segment that you're playing, you know, you talk about your competitor, your biggest competitor as a $300 million business. But what's the size of those? Uh, what did you say? It's like a trillion, multi-trillion dollar, multi-billion multi dollar industry. But what, what's the size of your segment? So, so right now, the overall cybersecurity market is about $175 billion. Within that, uh, 10 to $15 billion is dedicated towards the human side of cybersecurity, this side of the problem. And so that's the, that's the global TAM around that. Within that, our ambition is to get to $100 million in annual recurring revenue. That's the, that's the mountain now. You know, gone from got us to three. God help me, we're going to go to that run all the way to 100 and and. We'll see where that is. And and that's okay. You know, no before wants to be a billion dollar company within that TAM. Cool. 
lots of room to compete. This is not a winner-take-all market. This is going to be more like the CRM market. There's going to be lots of competitors at various price points for various companies specializing different ways. Um, and so, you know, my next march for us is to go from three million to ten million. That's the next leap because you don't you don't go immediately from three to a hundred. If there's anyone you know, young entrepreneurs listen to this, like. Stupid me seven years ago and be like, oh yeah, three, three to hundred easy. It's just, you know, it's a five-year plan and, and uh, there's going to be a few wrinkles along the way. But are you bootstrapping that or do you have the HR and sales capacity to, to seriously go at that 10 million or is that just you driving around trying to line up business? Like, a, you know, that's a big goal. <laughs> it is, it is a very big goal. And, uh, and I hope to have some more news to share on, on, on how that picture starts to shape up soon. Okay. I wanted to turn now that for the last uh, 20 minutes or so of our conversation to your development as an entrepreneur and the company. You said you started in the, or you were working in the uh, UNB's IT department. A lot of our high-tech companies, the, the, the founders of our high-tech companies were working at a job before starting the companies. In other words, they didn't come out of university or they didn't just sort of you know wake up in a garage and so on. They actually had a job and they got the idea while they were in that job to start a company. So how important was the experience in that IT department to your success now as an entrepreneur? I think it exposed me to the problem in, in ways. And universities are one of the most attacked organizations on the planet. When I, when I left UNB, we were getting hit more than 300 million times a week. Um, and that's only expanded exponentially since then. So, so the opportunity to, to understand a problem and then secondly, to get really, really fired up about it. And, and I can't overstate the importance of that passion because being a, an entrepreneurial founder, particularly being the CEO, this is a roller coaster. It has the highest highs. When we landed our first global bank in a, in a million dollar plus deal, oh my God. Like we were king of the world. You can have that week one week and then next week there's some critical challenge with your tech or some new competitor announces or somebody gets a $300 million financing round while you're still, you know, a tiny company and you're like, what am I going to do? Well, you're going to keep going. And, um, and I think that's probably the most important thing. And, and when we, when I was being interviewed by um, our earliest angel investors, and particularly the, the crew at East Valley, so um, Jeff White, Jerry Pond, Paul Eisner, um, Bob Justison, the questions they weren't at, were asking me wasn't just to assess was I the smartest guy in the room. I was pretty smart, but I wasn't the smartest guy in that room. The things they were looking for was, did I have the emotional maturity to know when I was wrong? Did I have the intelligence to say, I don't know the answer to that? And could I handle the heat of multiple multi-hour meetings with them? Um, because that's just a that's just a preview of what I would have to go through on this journey. Hmm. And uh, I didn't fully understand or appreciate um, all of the thought that they put into the the dragon's den that I went through that was non-public. Um, but it was it was a great early taste of what being an entrepreneur is really like. Yeah, I've had many talks with Jerry Pond, and I think over the years he's actually not as much interested in the technology or the product anymore. He's more interested in the person. 
which is kind of uh, kind of interesting. So I want to come back to that issue of your first uh, initial clients. We have heard from a number of large firms uh, that, that are firms that are large now that they did struggle to find those initial lead clients locally, that there wasn't a lot of appetite for uh, risk or for experimenting with a new tech company. Although Verifin, interestingly enough, got its start in the credit union uh, system in Newfoundland and then spread out across Canada. So very interesting parallel maybe to what you're doing on the finance side. But you said, you told us a little bit earlier that you did uh, have some success with your first customers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Who were those first five customers and uh, did that give you enough of a, of a, of a, of a, a catalytic uh, momentum to then go on and, and get to Bay Street and ultimately Wall Street? Yeah, I think uh, so. City of Fredericton, uh, the University of New Brunswick, uh, Bulletproof Solutions, which um, partnered with us to resell our product, was also one of our first customers. Mariner Partners, who invested in us, was also uh, you know a, a key early customer. And then because of my experience in higher ed, um, York University, um, particularly the Schulich School of Business in York University. So um, that those are the folks that gave us our early start. And you know even from from the earliest days while I was still at UNB, some key leaders in the security side of GNB had had they had known me. I was. In the media, even when I was still at UNB, I was starting to become well known as a a, a cybersecurity go to quote machine, I guess, um, and uh, expert. Uh, and you know, they kept track of me, and they, people watched. Those five customers were critical as the proof point to close the first funding round. And then, um, particularly Bulletproof Solutions and the team there, I have to give them credit. Uh, Wayne Hatfield was working for them and working for us part time as our first VP sales. And the smartest decision I ever made was to hire someone who had the right relationships in the IT and tech space to help get us early customers that would say yes in the region. That's the first 100K in sales. In November 2017, I got really lucky. Now, luck is a, is a combination of things, timing, skills, opportunity, et cetera. But it, it's certainly not all uh, credit to me. And I gave a presentation and I explained the philosophy that, we were, that we've covered a little bit on this uh, this podcast about our approach to cybersecurity and that global bank, one of their key uh, mid-level leaders uh, saw the presentation. He was brutally honest with me. He said, I love this, this, and this. You're wrong about this, this, and this, but I think you're smart enough to listen. So maybe we can work together. And that started a very long and lengthy relationship where we learned all about their pain. The best thing about your early adopter customers is they give you the oxygen of innovation. They give you the pain. And if you listen carefully, you can figure out solutions. And that's where I think Jerry is absolutely right about the people, because you've got to take this mindset in, is that you might be passionate about a problem, but you have to start seeing it from the lens of the people that are actually going to pay you money to solve the problem. So you use those those first customers as almost guinea pigs in terms of 1.0, moving to 2.0, 3.0, that type of thing. Absolutely. Like, I mean, the early version of our product did not give people positive reward points for um, reporting phishing. And customer feedback was, you you gotta say, you gotta give them a motivation, man. You gotta you gotta gamify this. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And the early version of our product didn't have an easy to use Outlook button for reporting fishes. We we're like, oh, just forward it to phishing at your company because you know we're nerds and we thought that that was just so simple. And they're like, no, man, you got to make it even easier. It's got to be a button, and oh, it's got to be eventually on their smartphone. And I remember this was a clutch moment for us landing our first million dollar deal, and our CTO 
uh, in three days, researched the latest stuff from Microsoft about how to integrate with their tech, built a working work of concept in time for me to demo to say, oh, yeah, button, we got it. We got you. <laughs> that's just, you know, some of the shenanigans along the way. That's awesome. Um, I follow you on social media, David, and you're fairly ubiquitous. And I don't know that that is consistent among other high growth startups. A lot of them are heads down. A lot of the founders are heads down working very hard on the business and not particularly in the public eye. Occasionally they'll stick their head up and they'll show up at a conference. You seem to be quite often quoted in the media as a cybersecurity expert, uh, speaking at conferences and so on. Is that part of your marketing strategy? Has that helped you build Gravitas and actually help uh, land clients? Yes and no. Yes, obviously it has benefits for us landing clients and particularly, you know, when, when we win national scale companies in Canada, um, they, they often attribute it to the level of expertise and exposure I have. And the fact that I am a credentialed security professional and, you know, I, I know a few things about what I'm talking about. Um, so it's, so it's helpful on that side. I think no, in that I do this for more than just to grow the business. I deeply, deeply care about these issues. And so I will take the time, even most recently, um, just yesterday, I, I gave a meeting interview talking about a, a horrific series of crimes that were committed against young uh, women in Fredericton or Mokdo uh, with a perpetrator using Snapchat. We, we don't sell solutions around that particular problem. We're not in the, um, the residential cybersecurity, individual cybersecurity space, but it's important to help put people in control of technology. So when I talk to parents about the need for them to, to play a more active role, that's not about me selling more Boceron. That's about me doing the right thing. Because ultimately, you know, whether, whether it's doing that interview or appearing in front of parliament in front of the Standing Committee on National Security and Public Safety, it's, it's about the kind of world I want to live in, the kind of world I want my nieces and nephews to inherit that's better. Um, because right now, the dumpster fire we're in is, is not better. I mean, we're... We're witnessing the first generation that's going to have a much more unsafe world than what I benefited. I mean, I grew up at the end of the Cold War, you know, as the guy Kawasaki, the end of history and globalization and all the good stuff that was about to happen. And now, you know, we've lived through two major economic calamities, a pandemic, global war on terror, uh, Cold War 2.0, and uh, the splinter net, the increasingly hostile, divisive global internet. So the world, the world our kids are getting right now... We, we haven't made it, particularly Gen X, uh, we haven't made it a better place. And and we have an obligation to make it a better place. So I wanted to ask you a few questions about Fredericton as a place to start uh, a business like yours. Uh, obviously, you talked earlier about the lead customer, the city of Fredericton, being very supportive, the mayor himself uh, being very supportive. You talked about government of New Brunswick. Uh, other than that, what other things do you like about it? What makes Fredericton a great place for startups like yours? Well, first, I, I think we don't give ourselves enough credit in New Brunswick for the vi the payoff for the vision from the McKenna years of investing in digital technology. We, we I always think it's important to remind ourselves. We had the first fiber to neighborhood and fiber to home in North America. We were ahead of the curve. Because we were ahead of the curve, Things were happening to us years, sometimes decades ahead of where others would be. That the the fact that we had high speed internet and the fact that the internet at UNB kept crashing is what spawned Q1 Labs. So the decision to go digital spawned the 600 million exit of Q1. Without Q1, there would be no Boceron because I would not have had the example to have the courage to leave 
what in traditional New Brunswick sense would be a good paying government job. I was a director at a university in the IT field and reasonably competent at what I did. So, you know, I had a pretty good smooth sailing life. Could have done a lot of easier things, a lot more hobbies. Uh, But other people had done it, which was inspirational. Other people had done it successfully, which put money in the economy, particularly in Fredericton and in St. John. There were entrepreneurs and advisors. Um, So we have the tech here. We had the pain here. We have the we had the capital here to get started. Um, you had folks like NBIF who wasn't about writing a check to me in the early days, nor with Mariner and East Valley was it about the, the check writing process. It was the questions they forced me to ask myself to get ready for this process. And uh, and I can remember all those conversations with people because this, this started as a kitchen table thing in November 2015. April 2016, it actually gets incorporated. June 2017, it actually gets some money. Just to give you some sense for the, we joke about the five years in business and that's five years in real business, but there are two years before that where this was a kitchen table idea. So we are small enough that you can make these connections with human beings. And it it takes a community to raise a startup and build an economy. You know, Silicon Valley, I remember I first went there for a... Um, uh, UNB trip to learn about cybersecurity technologies for for a major uh, firewall company. And I remember being so excited. I don't know what I had in my mind about what Silicon Valley was going to be, but I, I kind of pictured Futurama, right? Like I was just, I was so excited. We land and it's a giant office park neighborhood. There is nothing special about it, architecturally, geography, et cetera. It's not that impressive. It's the people. It's the people and the unlimited belief in themselves that that set that place apart and it was success going on to success going on to success and it's not easy to replicate that i'm not playing that down um but it can be replicated um and and that's why i'm so passionate about the the potential for fredericton and tech um can can we build the next uh silicon valley or be as big as waterloo maybe but maybe we don't need to have to be that big to have that proportionate of an economic impact in New Brunswick overall. I mean, I grew up in a generation that always wondered, what is I going to be able to get a job here in New Brunswick? And when people ask me about what's important to me and, and, and is it the big payday as an entrepreneur? And it's, it's not, it's not about the big payday. Sure. Money's nice, but more money, more problems. It's a, it created 40 plus jobs in New Brunswick. When I grew up in a generation that didn't think you could stay here and grow here. And, you know, so people ask me, like, where's your money? It's in all the people that work here at Beauceron. And no matter what happens next, because God only knows in startup land how the story goes. The roller coaster goes up, roller coaster goes down. No one can take from me that we created these jobs and we've created a whole passionate crew of young, hungry entrepreneurs. And so I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait to climb the next mountain. Maybe we'll make it to the 100 million. Maybe we'll mo- Maybe someone will gobble us up along the way. Who knows? I mean, the only thing I truly dread is going IPO, um, but we'll save that for another episode. Listen, are you concerned about the demise of CyberNB? No, not at all. Um, CyberNB was a great way to light the torch um, and to and to shine an example on what was quietly happening in our own background. And I think there will be something new come together that will be more industry driven uh, that will replace it. And we're seeing great leadership from um, Paul Maserol at UNB pulling together the sector. 
Uh, there was a lot of exciting stuff happening in the private sector. I think it was a great way to get things rolling. I still think that there's a powerful economic development, cybersecurity focus, and it still exists within ONB. I mean, they invested in us uh, in 2018, and they have been massive supporters of us, um, along with others. And no, I, I'm not losing any sleep about that. I think it was unfortunate how it all came to an end, um, but it, it, it existed for a time and a place. Something new will come, and New Brunswick has a lot to be proud of. So is there anything in the in the environment in Fredericton you'd like to see improved? The talent pipeline, tax system, regulatory issues, is there anything that's keeping you up at night or are you are mostly happy in, in the local environment and most of your concerns are related to market development and external stuff? I, I think most of my concerns have to do with housing. Um, you know, I, I, I've got a, a young-ish crew, but they're, they're starting to want to get a house. Hmm. And for the first time that I can ever think of in New Brunswick history, that's not a reasonable prospect for a lot of our junior and mid-level folks. Um, and we have to solve that. Like, and, and some of the, some of the lazy sort of advantages that we've just been able to enjoy the low dollar, the low cost of living, all of those other things, you know, the fact that if talent wanted to live here, it kind of had to work for somebody here, they're all gone. Hmm. Um, and I think that'll make better businesses. I think those pressures will make us even more hungry and competitive and we'll be able to tap in. There's so much angst about losing the, 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 the silent brain drain, the people here, but not, I'm not afraid of that at all. You know, the greatest thing that can happen to us is that we do have a cohort of hungry, ambitious people that go work for Google, Microsoft, uh, whoever else from Fredericton, Moncton, St. John, et cetera, and they get hungry and then they're creating more companies. Um, but we got to make sure we can house people. Uh, that's, that's the number one concern I have. And I think the, that is a result of, of policy that pushed people towards university degrees um, over skilled trades. And, you know, I, I've had talks with some of my uh, nephews and nieces, and I'm just as proud if they want to be a tradesperson as a, uh, as a university graduate. And we have to start, we have to start remembering the, the dignity and value of all work. You know, for a moment there in the pandemic, we had this celebration of frontline workers, you know, before we all retreated back into our usual selfishness. But but imagine just for a second, if we kept that celebration going and we stopped ranking people by their perception of the role they play in our economy and just celebrated everyone doing something that they found satisfying and that contributed in their way to the economy. I mean, it's a crazy thought. And, and, and I'd say like, well, David, you're a CEO. That's an awful privileged thing to say. Um, I'm a CEO because this is what I want to do. I could do any number of things. But if I wanted to do, if I wanted to go back to the army and that's what I want to do, I would feel just as proud as that, as I am as the CEO. So it says something about the current time we're in that when I asked the CEO of a tech company, what the biggest challenge is, his answer is housing. That is kind of interesting, but it hopefully uh, I'm sure there are folks listening to this podcast that need to hear that message. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this new remote workforce. It really got accelerated during the pandemic and it's a plus and a negative. On the plus side, it means you can hire talent from anywhere. Uh, on the negative side, um, you know, you may be hiring people that are outside the market and not paying taxes here, but even more than that, uh, maybe your employees are going to be recruited uh, by companies in Silicon Valley or, every, or anywhere else because they can stay here and work there. So how are you doing on that front? Are you, are you 
is your workforce becoming more hybrid or are more people working from home? Are you recruiting staff from outside New Brunswick remotely? So yes, all of the above. Um, you know, when the pandemic happened, we, like every other tech company, went fully remote. Um, and then as conditions have changed, we've seen, you know, uh, a certain portion of the population come back to the office. We have full-time remote employees, both in New Brunswick and outside of New Brunswick. And I think that's an important point to make. So we've created opportunities for jobs, good paying jobs in St. Stephen. You know, that was something I would not have imagined before the pandemic. I would have thought everybody here in Fredericton and, um, you know, being an old school kind of guy, like walking around, see everyone heads down, working, et cetera. Um, but hybrid work has been the greatest thing that's ever happened. I, I, I have become more productive because of it, but it is a double-edged sword. I actually come to the office three days a week, not because I have to, but because I want to, because it helps me sell, set better boundaries between being working and trying to be home and present as a, as a spouse. Um, and, um, you know, after a long time locked up in the basement uh, in my, my little home office, it was great to get out. Um, and I do think that for certain roles, particularly as we have to, and it's a good thing, we have to hire for um, hunger and teach for skill. And we got to get beyond what degree you have and how many years experience. We just feel like this person's super hungry. Let's let's get him into the company. But those those people just starting your company, they need FaceTime. And I don't mean the FaceTime app. They need to be together, collaborating, learning, um, building trust is important. So so role and career stage hybrid work is going to be really important for us to figure out. Um, what is the right stage that you've built someone up that can be successfully independent based on what work they're trying to do? But we just had, um, yesterday we had our fifth anniversary celebration party, our fifth birthday bash, and we flew in our Ontario employees, drove up the folks from St. Stephen and from Moncton, uh, and we were all together in person. And the energy in that room cannot be replicated in a Teams chat. It just can't. So there is going to be a place for in-person. Is it going to be the way it was before this? No. And that's okay. We can be better. But I think for leaders and managers, there's a massive emotional and psychological adjustment. And there is more labor you have to put in to maintaining a cohesive workforce when they're hybrid. Um, a friend of mine, she wrote her master's paper on this exactly issue, very prescient five years ago, um, and, and the work that has to go in, because you're, you're going to have to work harder to get the same mileage you get in person. So, so hybrid's here to stay. Hybrid also means, and hybrid remote, whole new set of cybersecurity challenges. So the idea of, oh, well, we bought the firewall, we're good. It was never true, but it's even less true now when someone's got a smart home TV they haven't patched that's actually been infected with malware and the criminals are now actively trying to get your senior executive through hacking them over their home network on their smart TV. Um, and it sounds ludicrous, but one of the biggest casinos in the United States was hacked uh, because the Internet of Things temperature uh, control for their tropical fish tank was accidentally put on the Internet, vulnerable, and the attackers lived in the fish, fish tank computer and then hacked their high roller list. So uh, trust me, cybercrime evolves and it scales. Um, so protecting the home and educating people, not just training them about how to read an email to look for phishing, educating them to care about cybersecurity is the only way you're going to be able to protect them in hybrid environments in their own home. You make a strong case. So I wanted to end our conversation today uh, with a discussion about your future growth potential, but you've uh, salted that into our conversation. Uh, you've told us about your uh, exciting growth potential and, and opportunities. You've hinted that there might be some announcements uh, forthcoming. So I guess maybe we can end today um, 
a final question about what new markets you you are pursuing. So you can you can go geographic, you can go sectoral, but what are you? How are you going to get to that hundred million? How, how are you? Are you going after utilities? We saw that whole business in the U.S. with utilities being hacked. It seems like, as I said earlier, it seems like every single industry could use your service. Absolutely, and so we we do have a plan. Um, we we could get to ten million in Canada alone easily, and we could continue that path and and just wave the Canadian flag. But we're hungry, and and we believe we have a better technological solution. We we've reduced fishing by ninety percent in ninety days. That's better and faster than the uh, current market gorilla. It takes them a year to get close to the results we achieve in ninety days. So we can do a lot of good, and we can grow, and we can make a lot of money in the United States. So that is a key focus, and and obviously uh, banking and telecommunications tech companies in particular are on the leading edge of that. But we we have a great. Um, program where we sell with channel partners, managed security providers. So people that provide IT services to all kinds of industries, half of our revenue comes from, from those folks. Um, and so uh, building up that channel network and growing with those and helping them uh, grow share of wallet with their customers and, and frankly, beyond the revenue side, which is important, that's a business, it make a greater difference and help secure their customers even better. So, so those are some of the plans. I have to be careful about how detailed to get in the podcast because I will say this, that, that global uh, Florida-based entity, they sure do love to copy us. Um, and so uh, they know who we are. We know who they are. Others know who we are. Um, you know, I often joke, you know, start your photocopiers. Uh, so it, it's fun. It's incredibly intense. Um, and I don't, I don't view competition as enemy. I hate that analogy. This is not about like conquering or battle. It's about the sports teams. Like I'm getting to play in the, um, in the NHL of cybersecurity businesses. And, uh, you know, God willing, I'm going to eke out that Stanley cup on like my beloved Maple Leafs. Um, but, but hope springs eternal. I guess that's why I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. Ho- hopefully you get there before the, you know, if the Leafs trajectory is any experience, you might be in trouble, but, uh, Anyway, now I, I um, maybe that Florida company is going to come to town with a checkbook. You never know. Yeah, and and and, and maybe um, I, I have in mind who I would like the kind of company I'd like to buy us uh, if and if and when that day ever came and made sense, and what impact that could have in New Brunswick. Obviously, my first and foremost fiduciary responsibility is is good returns to shareholders. Second, of course, is giving employees the greatest single opportunity. Um, but it's certainly something I'm open to. The one thing I'd say in the entrepreneur world, I've been told this, is, is two most important lessons. Number one, don't get obsessed with the title and the job. And I've always said this from day one. If my board found somebody better, smarter, who can take this company to that $100 million better than I can, then I will step aside any day of the week. Um, because I'm not in this role because I'm Dave Shipley. I'm in this role because right now I'm the best person to be in that role. Secondly, um, the whole idea that you have to control the entire thing is a fallacy. Like you, you, you can't do this on your own. I had a really awesome co-founding team. I'm no longer the majority shareholder of my company. Uh, I'm completely comfortable with that because when I look at the, at what my return is going to be from doing this short term and long term, it's about more than just the check at the end of the day. David, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. We wish you all the best as you grow your company into the future. Thank you so much, David. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, 
please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.